Thank you all for being with us today. Welcome to all those of you here and those of you joining us online this morning. Happy Father's Day on this special day in which we honor and celebrate dads. Today happens to also be Juneteenth, our newest federal holiday. If you're not familiar with Juneteenth, it's also known as Emancipation Day. It's been called Jubilee Day, and the origins go back to 1865. On this date in 1865, enslaved persons in Galveston, Galveston, Texas, finally received the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Remarkably, the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed January 1st, 1863. So this was like two and a half years later. Imagine that, having been freed but not knowing that you had been freed. And when I think about this particular holiday, it makes me think of the gospel. And it makes me think of those in many parts of the world, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have not yet heard the news that their freedom from sin, from slavery to sin, has been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one reason that we are so focused on unreached people groups as part of our missions ministry. Well, I would like to take just a moment and uh, pray again this morning, so would you join me before we get into God's Word. Father, we thank you for um, what this day represents, uh, both the celebration of Juneteenth and also for, for Father's Day. Lord, for those of us whose dads are alive, would you enable us to honor them today? And I pray for those this morning for whom it's a difficult day, those who have lost husbands or fathers recently. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself to them today as the father of the fatherless, the great, great comforter, the one who loves us beyond our understanding. May peace be upon your people. And as we open your word, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law? In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. We're continuing this morning with a new series of messages that we're simply calling questions. Looking at questions that arise in, in life, practical things, cultural things, moral things. And this morning... I'd like to deal with the question of finding more meaning in our work. Now, I'm not doing this message today just because it's Father's Day, as if only fathers or men work. The scripture passages that we'll look at today, I believe, are equally applicable to women and men, people uh, teaching children at home, retirees, and students who are getting an education. And I'd like to begin with the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, particularly chapters 1, 2, and 3, provide a critically important foundation for all of life. If you want to have a biblical worldview of all things in life, the starting place really is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because seeing things as God would have us see them begins with belief in God as creator. God is creator of all things. In Genesis 1 to 3, 
we get the, the foundational truths about sin and redemption, about gender, about sexuality, about marriage, about work, and importantly, sin and redemption. In the beginning, we read in Genesis 1 and verse 1, God worked. In the beginning, we read, God created the heavens and the earth. That verse is perhaps the most important foundational truth for understanding everything. God is our creator. God created the heavens and the earth. Scripture goes on to describe God's work of creating all things as work. We read in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I think this shows us right off the bat that work itself is good. It's holy. It has value. Work has meaning. Work, work has dignity because it is something that God does. Now, God did not stop working after six days of creating. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 5 and verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Before he went to the cross, he told his followers, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I wonder what that place must be like that those who know Jesus will one day see. So God works. That makes work uh, something good, something valuable. We read further in Genesis that as his image bearers, those who are created in his likeness, we are to work. We're called to work. The Lord God took the man that he had created him, created and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work has dignity because it's something God does, and God then allows us to work. I think people need the dignity that comes from work. Uh, even those who are not in the working world, maybe you're, you're retired or maybe you're a student and, and your education is your work. And as a retiree, uh, the productive service you render is your work. But we human beings need the dignity that comes from work. It's unfortunate when there is a disincentive to work in a society. I think of the man I called uh, about six months into COVID who I had known fairly well, knew he got a lot of his uh, fulfillment in his work, but he wasn't working at the time. And he said, I'm making more money sitting at home than I was working. And he's a relatively young man. I thought, that's too bad because it's God's image bearers. Work is good. Now, someone may ask this question. But isn't work a result of humanity's sin? Isn't work a curse? No, work is not a curse. But adversity in work is a result of humanity's sin. These are critically important verses that have to do with work. In Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, after Adam and Eve had violated God's word very clearly, knowingly, God pronounced a curse. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till the ground you return, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Now notice, work itself is not a curse, but this difficulty, this toil, this adversity in work is the curse. Yet notice this, work still bears fruit. Three times in these verses we read, you shall eat of it. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. You shall eat the plants of the field. You shall eat bread. Though there's adversity, work still produces something good. I believe that in eternity we will still work. Now, that may be a disappointment to some, but it will not be at all like the work on earth. I can't imagine just sitting around on clouds strumming a harp that some people think that's what we're going to be doing and doing nothing productive because there is, there's joy, there's fulfillment in producing things, in being productive. I really enjoyed reading um, most of, so far, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Here's what he says about eternity. He writes, there will be work in the paradise of the future just like there was in the paradise of the past. That is the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. Because God himself takes joy in his work. He takes joy in his work. In that paradise, in the future that is, heaven, you will be useful in the lives of others to infinite degrees of joy and satisfaction. You will perform with all the skill you can imagine. Jesus told his followers, uh, in the kingdom to come, you, you'll rule with me. Uh, you'll reign with me. There will be productive, meaningful things to do. But in this world, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there is resistance to productive work. Work is good, it produces, it bears fruit. But all of us who've worked very long know we encounter problems from time to time. It's not without its challenges. And that's because this world is broken. As I thought Pastor Andrew pointed out so well last week in his message. But though this world is broken because of sin, there's much adversity. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a new hope and a new perspective, even in a world that's broken, and even a new perspective about our work, the gospel of Jesus Christ really reframes all of life for believers. Now, I mentioned that Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are foundational for, for much of what follows after in the Bible, and they're critically important. I think we even see in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may wonder why that verse is on the screen. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothing. This immediately comes after he has pronounced the curse. You know, painful toil. You'll, you'll eat of the fruit of the ground. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothing. Now, it's odd because just a few verses earlier... We read that Adam and Eve were clothed with loincloths made of fig leaves. So why does God 
all of a sudden, after pronouncing a curse, immediately clothe them with animal skins. God shed the blood of an animal, maybe more than one, that he had just created. Why did he do that? God had said to Adam and Eve, he'd said to Adam initially, do not eat of this particular tree. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Immediately we see God putting in place the principle that theologians refer to as substitution. Adam and Eve, they were, they were spiritually separated from God with their sin, by their sin. Physically, they did not die. An animal died. An animal's blood was shed. Later, the scripture would say in the book of Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. If you wonder why God called for all those animals to be sacrificed in the Old Testament, it's because they were in a type, in a shadow, uh, bearing this atonement, becoming this atonement for human sin. Until the day, until the day that the God who made the first sacrifice would do the last sacrifice. Jesus would shed his blood on the cross. God in his mercy let the judgment for our sins fall on an animal, but one day God himself would bear our judgment on the cross. We read these words in Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> For the blood of bulls and goats, goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more, <coughs> excuse me, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? <coughs> God appointed the first sacrifice, he appointed the final sacrifice. Since Jesus shed his blood on the cross, there is never again any need for any sacrifice of any animal. God himself, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, gave his life, shed his blood. <clears throat> and not only are we forgiven of sins, but the writer of Hebrews says, our consciences, our very consciences, are purified to serve the living God. So those who have embraced the salvation Jesus has provided, those who have embraced him as Savior and Lord, now have a new perspective toward all of life. Even our consciences are purified by the blood of Christ. And because of that, the gospel reframes our perspective toward all things, even our work. And so I'd like to briefly try to address this question. As Christians, as those who have embraced the salvation God's provided through Jesus, how can we find more meaning in our work? Because I've known many, many people over the years, many Christians, who find their work terribly tedious and burdensome. Maybe you've known other people in recent years. I, I've heard of at least 
some young adults working 12, 15-hour days, making tons of money, many in the technology areas, hoping to retire at 40 and 45, kind of like I'm just going to kill myself for 20 years, but then I'm going to be done. Is that the way God wants us to think about our work? How can we find more meaning in our work? I would suggest these four things. Number one, see your work as a calling. The Apostle Paul writes, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now the context here, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and he's, he's uh, addressing questions. Uh, should you marry? Should you not marry? Paul is saying, Abide in the state in which you are in when God called you, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're circumcised, whether you're uncircumcised. And he even goes to whether you're a bondservant or whether you're free. He says if you can use your freedom, get it. But um, don't feel like just because you become a Christian, you necessarily have to leave your vocation. He says this again similarly in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 20. I think it's important to understand that a calling to serve the Lord as a nurse or a doctor, as a painter, as a teacher, as a business owner, as an accountant is just important as a calling to be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. In the Protestant Reformation, the, the leaders like um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others really stress this point. We read this again in Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. The 16th century Protestant reformers, particularly Martin Luther and John Calvin, argued that all work, even so-called secular work, was as much a calling from God as the ministry of the monk or priest. I know people who are working in vocations of education or medicine or business, and they're seeing it as a ministry, and they're bearing fruit for God. And frankly, I, I feel like some of them are bearing more fruit and, and, and seeing God do more great things than some people who are in ministry as a vocation. See your work as a calling. I think this applies equally to students who are doing your work for the Lord, to retirees who have worked hard in the past, so when you can't work as hard in the future, you have prepared for that time, but you're now able to do productive things in service to others. How grateful I am for the retirees in our church that serve uh, in so many volunteer capacities in our church. So see your present state as a calling in which you can glorify God. It doesn't mean you, you have to stay there forever. You can't change jobs or something like that. But understand um, where you are, you can serve God. Secondly, see your work not only as a calling, but as worship. Paul the Apostle writes these words, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Teach children to the glory of God. Manage employees for the glory of God. Do accounting, practice medicine, treat patients for the glory of God. And what I think is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible regarding how we do our work. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, 
Whatever you do, work heartily. That means work with all your heart as for the Lord and not for men. Now, here's the context of this verse. He's actually addressing it to bondservants. To be real blunt about it, those who are in the institution of slavery. And Paul is saying, do everything you do. Everything you do with all your heart as if the Lord's your boss. He's the one you're doing your work for. Paul's not endorsing or approving of slavery, but he's telling us how Christians are to live, and certainly it's applicable to our work. The work that we find burdensome or dreary at times, the manager that we think is unfair, unkind, unjust, whatever you do, work heartily as if working for the Lord and not for men. Knowing from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. You mean in the job you don't like, that you find so burdensome, you're serving Christ? If you're a Christian, you are. Do your work heartily as if working for the Lord himself. Tim Keller again writes in his book, Every Good Endeavor, your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called and equipped you to do it, no matter what kind of work it is. Thirdly, see your work as witness. Years ago, uh, many years ago, right after I got out of college, I was a sales rep. And uh, my, my dream, my vision was to one day start a small uh, business. And uh, I thought sales would be a great way to learn about business. And um, I loved being a, a, a sales rep. And at the same time, I was getting involved in ministry and was part of a, a singles ministry. And we had planned this uh, weekend trip for our singles ministry. I think it was going to be down at the beach, and I had some leadership with that, put a lot of time into it. So late in the week when we're about to leave, um, my boss came to me and said, "Um, David, you need to work this weekend. We're moving offices. I need you to be here and be part of that. I started to argue. I said, I can't. I've got this planned. I've got to be somewhere else. I've got to do something else. And as I got madder and madder uh, at him, I don't remember if these words came to mind or immediately or shortly after, but these are the words that really changed my attitude. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh boy, no complaining. Why? that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That is, in this unfair world, you work in, a, in an environment where <clears throat> mandates come down from the home office or from the, the, the larger corporation and policies change or benefits are taken away and and the complaining is almost contagious, you don't enter in. Why? Because your work is also a witness. You're different. You shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast the word of life. This doesn't mean you can never register a disagreement with some policy with the company, but you do what you do without grumbling, that you may be blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world. Why do you think you work where you do? And what do your coworkers, unless you're just working home by yourself now all the time, which I realize a lot of people love, what would your coworkers say about the way you work? Not only by the excellent way you produce and do your work, but by the things you don't say, by the critical attitude you don't bring into the work environment. See your work as a calling. See, it is worship to God as you do your work with all your heart as unto the Lord. And see it as a witness. And then finally, see your work as a way to provide for your own needs and the needs of others. I really loved my um, first job as a sales rep. As I reflect on it now, I kind of wonder why, because it was straight commission. You only made money if you sold products there were no expense reimbursements. There were, there were hardly any benefits. But I got out of college and I was making 30, sometimes more sales calls, cold calls a day. And I absolutely loved it for a little while. <laughs> it, it, it got very wearying and tedious and burdensome <clears throat> to call on offices and get rejection after rejection after rejection. And yet I felt like God was calling me to stay in that position over a number of years. And I found something to be extremely helpful to me. And that was to read and reread and reread and reread and reread the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs sets up these contrasts and comparisons. And one of those is a contrast between the sluggard, the lazy person, and the diligent person, or the one who doesn't work well and the one who does work well. And there are just a number of scriptures that really reformed my attitude about work. Here are just a couple of examples. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Our work is a way not only to provide for our own needs, but to enable us to give to the needs of others. Proverbs chapter 28. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings. Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes these words about the importance of work so that we're able to give. In Ephesians 4.28, he writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There are people who can't work, and for them, those of us who can work, can to them, we can give. We can help provide for them. It's right that we do so. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes that we should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands so that we may walk properly before outsiders. It's part of our witness that we work and work well and be dependent on no one.
And in perhaps his strongest words about work, Paul the Apostle writes these words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother that is a professing Christian who is walking in idleness. Now this is a person not who's retired, not who's a student, but someone who can work but won't work. Walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And listen to this now. If anyone is not willing to work, note the words, not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Wow. And again, what about retirees? Retirees are people who have worked many years and have prepared for the season when you can't work as much. But again, I praise the Lord for the retirees who continue to do productive things. Not just sitting around watching television eight hours a day, but serving the Lord, serving others, serving the church, serving in the community, working with nonprofits, doing productive things. Just as a student is doing something productive by, by earning her education, just as a stay-at-home mom or dad is doing something productive by raising children, by teaching children. See your work as a calling. See your work as worship. Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. See your work as, as witness. The way you work is part of your witness. And see your work as a way to provide, not only for your own needs, but to be able to give and provide for the needs of others. As we reflect on these things, I'd like to raise two questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. Am I finding my core identity in who I am in Christ rather than my vocation? Our vocations will likely change over time. There will likely come a time when we can't do what we once did. So it's important that we we have a greater identity than our vocation. And for the believer, our identity, our identity should be, must be, who we are in Christ. If you've embraced Jesus, you can know who you are, and that is a beloved child of God. I want to read something to you from Henry Nowen, <clears throat> understand this if you've embraced Jesus as your Savior. He writes, you are not what you do, although you do a lot. You are not what you've collected in terms of friendships and connections, although you might have many. 
You are not the popularity that you've received. You're not the success of your work. You're not what people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and often quite preoccupied are not telling the truth about who you are. I'm here to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved daughters and sons of God and that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity and you are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine. You belong to me. And I love you with an everlasting love. If you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, whether you feel it or not, this is your core identity. This is who you are. Live out of that identity. Do your work out of that identity. And then secondly, how is God calling me to change the way I view my work? To see it as a calling. To do my work as unto the Lord. To glorify Him in it. To see my work as worship. To see my work as a witness. And it's a way to provide for my own needs, the needs of my household, and for others. Let's pray about that today. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray, I pray first for any who has not embraced the salvation that Jesus provided in his death on the cross. And how I thank you in your great sovereign mercy, you provided for the cleansing of our sins and the purifying of our consciences that we might serve you without fear all the days of our lives. And I pray, Father, for those who are struggling with their attitudes about work, that you would give a new perspective, a reframed attitude because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would glorify you in our work and do our work heartily as unto you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.